Started Communication, hosted by Molly and Trisha. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Lost Art of Communication podcast. Today's very special guest is Johnny Crowder. He is the founder of a platform called Cope Notes, which provides daily mental health support to its users. Welcome, Johnny. Howdy, partners. I like that. I wish listeners could see the painting behind you. Is that a rabbit? Person? I. It's a bird. So my friend actually is an artist and he oh. has loaned me these paintings to display while I'm on Zoom. And every few months when he has a show, he takes them away and gives me new ones. I love <laughs> they that. They are for sale if you're interested. But yeah, no, I think it's a people walking and then there's like a bird. So the bird on top of his hat made it look like he had a Bugs Bunny head on a person's <laughs> body. And I was like, wow, what an intriguing painting. It's I can totally really see cool. that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's some people walking and then the giant bird on the guy's head. Thank you for, for noticing. Oh, yeah. Great. So why don't we start by you giving us and our listeners a little background on yourself. What's your story? What's my story? What a complex question, but I get that a lot. A lot of people are like, hey, you know how you've been alive for 28 years? Can you sum it up in like 30 seconds? So I'm going to try to give you some highlights. Um, I The reason why I work in mental health now is I grew up with a number of different mental illnesses um, all throughout elementary, middle, high school, into college. But I didn't start treatment until high school. So you'll notice I, I waited a cool 10 years before I actually like started um, formal treatment. And then I waited a number of years after that to start like emotionally and mentally engaging in treatment. So for basically in treatment in high school, I was like, you don't know me and you don't know what I'm going through. So I was a total brat. I wasn't doing myself any favors. And then I went to school for psych because I was thinking, I'll learn about it. You, These clinicians can't tell me. I'll become a clinician. And then I went to UCF for psychology and found out that all of the doctors were right. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this totally backfired on me. And then I started working in mental health, so doing peer support and public advocacy, and then also touring in a band and doing some peer support and public advocacy through heavy metal and hardcore music, which has been a really unique experience as well. Wow, that is a, you pretty much timed it perfectly in that 30 seconds, so good on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's a lot to unpack, you're right. Like that is, um, you've lived a life. And I think what I want to point out is the interesting thing you stated about being emotionally engaged into the therapy. I've never heard anyone kind of frame it like that. And that's so... Uh, such a good way to think about it. Like, yeah, you could be in getting support or getting help or be in therapy or um, things like that. But if you're not mentally there, then it's kind mm -hmm. of, I would assume in one ear out the other. What did, what was that effect like on you? What were you going through in that moment? Well, I was, I was convincing myself that I was doing the work mm. because that's how you justify. Um, you don't ever want to admit that the reason why something isn't working is maybe because you're not applying yourself. So I would show up and be like, no, my therapist is obviously not doing a good job. I'm the one coming to her office, yeah. but it's kind of like, you, have you ever driven somewhere? And then you realize, whoa, I'm here. Yeah. And I like, wasn't present driving. 
that's what I was doing with therapy. And then I would complain that therapy wasn't helping, but it's Mm -hmm. because the whole time my therapist was talking, I was, I was really mentally in my own world. Like I'm diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar one and OCD. And so when you have that kind of cacophony occurring in your mind, if someone's trying to communicate with you like a therapist, your brain is like, picturing different things and he- literally hearing different voices. So it was really challenging for me to um, listen and engage with a therapist. But then it was also equally challenging for me to admit that maybe the reason why therapy wasn't working was because I wasn't fully engaged. I think what you just said is so profound because I've met so many people that say, well, yeah, I tried therapy. It didn't work for me. I didn't like it. And it's when it becomes a passive thing, like, oh, I'll just pop this pill. It'll solve my problems or, oh, I'll just do this thing and then I'll be better. It's not going to work because the whole point of therapy is you have to do the reflecting. You have to do the work on yourself, which is very hard and very scary. So I'm curious what prompted the shift in you or how did you go about making the the therapy or whatever it was that you and ultimately did to help yourself, how did you make that shift from just sitting there being in the room to actually doing something that actively helped you? The, so it's not what you think. I didn't have like a, you know, Oh, I owe it to myself. And I, you know, I think that's a story people want to hear is like, I woke up one morning and I was like, no more. And I didn't have that. Um, what actually happened is I, I chose psychology. I was taking college level psych in high school as my chosen science. And, you know, when you're in an office with a counselor and they say, you know, what you're describing sounds a lot like schizophrenia. And you go, what are you, what are you trying to say about me? And you like puff up and you put your guards up and you're like, you don't know. You know, those people have schizophrenia and they wear straight jackets and they're criminals and I'm not... I, I don't live with that, but, but then when you're in a classroom setting and you have a textbook open in front of you and you're doing a module on abnormal psychology and they're outlining symptoms and how they exhibit themselves in daily behavior and you go, oh, wait a second, this textbook is objective. So I could tell myself the story that my counselor was trying to hurt me and insult me. Um, cause it felt personal there, but a textbook is just, it's, you know, the person who wrote that textbook didn't write it at me. So it felt like this objective view that helped me certain mental and physical actions and reactions in your body. And it just made it feel a lot less scary and personal and a lot more tangible. And from that point on, I felt less afraid to engage with my therapist because I knew she wasn't insulting me she was doing her job yeah being learning about that from an objective source and removing the stigmas from the information I can imagine is huge which which makes me think about like I think about this a lot living life in a vacuum as without any of the preconceived notions or thoughts of other people around you like if, if we were just presented with information in this objective way without the stigmas and things around that, how would our lives be different? And that, I think what you just told me sounds like 
in this case around mental health and, and those diagnoses and accepting that information potentially being on you could have been helpful. So I'm, I'm glad that you were able to get this objective information. Um, but how has the stigma of mental health affected you? So it's, it's cost me stuff. Like I, it used to cost me some things and now it costs me other things. So initially stigma cost me, um, living in a healthy way. Cause I had so much pronounced self stigma that I wouldn't engage in. Like, I'd be like, Ugh, self care. Ugh, I don't even want to talk Oh, mental health. Yeah. Right. I'm not gonna have a conversation about this. And it was this part of me that just wanted it not to apply to me. So I was depriving myself of the support that I desperately, desperately needed. And then as I started warming up to that and embracing these types of conversations, they started costing me other things. Um, so initially I was costing myself care and support and health, physical, emotional, mental health. And then as I started engaging more and more, it cost me some relationships. It cost me some opportunities because I would, you know, there were some friendships that I knew were damaging for my mental and emotional health. And I had to sacrifice spending time with certain people in order for me to get healthy. Um, people who had habits that were counter to the way that I was trying to grow. And that, that I don't mean to diminish that. That's like a big sacrifice. And also I've had people distance themselves from me due to stigma. So they find, you know, I'm unfortunately slash fortunately I am Googleable. So I, I went on a date with this one girl one time and it went super, super well. Um, and then I went on a very next date with her and it was two dates in a row that went super well. And I was like this, I don't date a lot. Um, I'm very like project and creativity oriented. So I don't really get out much. So I went on these two dates with this girl and I was like, this is awesome. I might actually like start dating someone consistently for the first time in a long time. And then the third date was really weird. The vibe was totally different. And I, I was like, I have to ask what, you know, first two dates were amazing. And now like it's the stiff, weird atmosphere. What's going on? She said, I Googled you and read all of this stuff that you've been through. And you, you're telling me you were raped as an adult. And you're telling me you, you grew up in a house that had addiction in it and you tried to kill yourself. And I just, I just don't want to get into all of that. So there is a part of me that understands that the more advocacy I do, um, the more potential relationships and opportunities it will cost me. Like I lost a job. I was hired to work at a place. I was a copywriter and I was fired the day after I posted um, a testimony about my experience recovering from suicidal ideation on social media. So the very next day I was fired without reason. And so I've lost opportunities and relationships due to stigma um, but it's super worth it. I'd rather trade those than my own health and safety. I like that you say it's worth it because those, this, these are conversations that have to be had because if you know this is happening to you, think of how many other people this is happening to that they feel isolated and alone and that they can't share certain things. So I'm curious, even though you know it's, risky and you didn't tell this girl going back to that example of the girl that you went on a few dates with you obviously didn't share that information with her she found it on the internet so 
in this tricky age, finding out that, okay, you're totally Googleable. Someone can read all of this very personal stuff about you. How do you navigate when in a friendship or in a dating situation, when to disclose that information to someone? So, you know, my, so for example, I'll, I'll compare it to this. So I'm in a touring band and we tour normally when the world doesn't shut down, we tour quite a bit. So we're on tour four to six months a year. I used to tour six to eight months a year. Um, so we're, we're out a lot. So it's not like uh, in, in a relationship setting, for example, it's not like, oh, cool, my boyfriend's a rock star. It's like, he's never home. He's always on the road. He's leaving for two months. He comes back for three weeks and then he's gone for six weeks. I feel like I'm not in a relationship. So it can be challenging to lead with, you know, when someone's like, what do you do? If you say, I'm a musician, the connotation is often drugs, alcohol, crime, cheating on people. Like, you know, it's this very um, skewed perception of what it looks like to be a touring musician. And so I never lead with that, but I never lie about it. So um, it's a delicate balance, but I would say that the more open I am, like I'll say this, the healthiest relationship I ever had, this is going to counter my point completely. The healthiest relationship I ever had was with this girl that I met at a show, which goes against every rule. Like the rule of thumb is you do not date girls at shows because they're the power dynamic could get unhealthy. Like if you're on a stage and they're not, it's like a, they could be a fan or you could feel you have this weird pull. And it's just like a no, no, basically, um, at least for me. But I met this girl at a show and she did not know. She had never heard of my band. She got there after we played. So she had no idea who I was. And our first conversation, um, we like flirted a little bit at the show. And then as we were leaving, I was like, hey, can I get your phone number or something? And she said, well, you should know that I am in recovery for a heroin addiction and um, I'm on probation from, from dealing drugs. So I'm like getting clean and sober now for the last like six months, but this is still very much a part of my life. And I said, well, you should probably know that I'm a, I'm a suicide survivor. I, I take antipsychotic medication currently. This was years ago. And we dated forever. It was like the longest relationship ever because we both started off saying like, I'm going to be straight up with you. Here's the stuff I'm working on. And if that scares you, no harm done. So I do think mentioning it earlier is better because there's less pretense. Like if someone knows that about you, then you're never going to be worried about them knowing anything else. Cause you're like, that's the thing that is the biggest component of my life. So if you know that there's I'm not worried about you knowing that, you know, I listen to Smash Mouth or whatever your guilty pleasure is. I think that's really huge that she shared that, but also I'm sure it's a different dynamic if someone reads this about you on the internet versus hearing it from you, hearing your story and hearing what you're doing now as a result. So to say, I'm not still in that situation, here is my past and here's mm -hmm. I'm moving forward. And like the humanization aspect of it, like, like you said, Trisha, you're not reading it on the internet, but you're talking to a human who has a voice, who has a body, who has a personality. And it's like, yeah. oh, this person has explained this to me versus this blog is on this yep. nummy Google, this disorder. And oh my goodness, like I cannot like. Oh yeah. 
that part is a lot. Um, I do want to mention Blink-182 did write a song it's about meeting a girl at a rock show. So it can't it be can that happen. bad. Yeah, <laughs> it can happen. That was the first thing that came to my mind. Um, all right. So all of that to say that now you have a company called Cope Notes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So we, uh, I'm going to keep it short and sweet. Um, we use daily text messages to improve mental and emotional health. So all the texts are written by peers with lived experience. They are reviewed by mental health professionals and then they're delivered at random times. So you never know when we're going to text you or what the text will say. It could be a psychology fact or a journaling prompt or an exercise. And over time, these randomly timed interventions train your brain to think in healthier patterns. So it actually, if you've ever read about like cognitive restructuring and neuroplasticity, this is that only it feels so easy. It is like the easiest first step towards working on your mental and emotional health because it's just one or two randomly timed messages a day. It's not, there's no appointments or downloads. You don't share personal information. So our focus is how can you make a little bit of progress every day instead of trying to load all of it into like one therapist appointment a week or one every two weeks or one a month? How can you break that down into these tiny incremental steps every day? I'm a huge fan of that and life in so many things. It's the small steps to make mm -hmm. big changes. And I'm a speech coach. And that's something I work with my clients on is how can you do this a little bit every day? And even for myself, just small habits really add up over time. How did you come up with that idea? Or did you work with someone else on this? Can you kind of walk us through the origin of that? Because I think it's a phenomenal idea and platform. I appreciate the kind words. And also Molly knows if she's watched half my TED talk. So the other half, the part that you haven't seen is probably how I started working on Cope Notes. Um, so if anyone wants like the long story, just watch my TED talk and it has like the 18 minute version. But the shorter version is my frustration was I would, I was doing that thing where I was, I was chunking. So I'd put like all of my mental and emotional health work into like one hour a week. And I'd be like, there, I sat with my therapist and then now I'm driving away and I get back to my life. And it was so separate from my lifestyle and the way that I thought and behaved that I would make progress for an hour and then I would backslide for like six days and 23 hours. I just fall right back into all my old habits. And I realized that I didn't have the consistency because I was learning about neuroplasticity in school. And I was like, well, the main thing that what I'm, my approach right now is lacking is consistency. So I need something to interrupt the negative thought patterns that persist when I'm not, when I forget to monitor them. So I started leaving sticky notes everywhere in my house, like it, on my mirrors and inside pots and pans in my house. But it's hard to surprise yourself, kind of like it's hard to tickle yourself. Um, so they were helping, but not a ton. So I was trying to figure out a way to build something that could consistently surprise me where I didn't know it was coming. Coming. So the original version of Cope Notes was me choosing random times, arbitrary times, like for the next month, and then setting a text scheduler to deliver texts at those random times that I chose. So I chose the time, but I chose it four and a half weeks ago. So I don't know when the text will come. And then 
I just started sending those random texts to friends to see if they resonated with them unsolicited. So no, I didn't provide any context. I just like sent them text messages and all of my friends said like, whoa, how did you know that I needed to hear that? And I was like, dang, I should try to make this a real thing. That is so nice. I think, yeah, like the randomness of it is super helpful because if, if you know it's coming, you can ignore it a lot easier too. Like, I'm just not ready for this. I can't think about this mm-hmm. right now. Um, and getting it at a random time during the day is probably the fact or probably the aspect that makes it work the best. Um, yeah. and what kind of weight to stuff? So like I have post-its all over the place, but if I see the same post-it every day, mm. I'm not going to stop and read it and have it resonate with me versus if it's a novel text message, it could say an iteration of the same exact thing, but it's the novelty. I think that's helpful. Dude. So okay. yeah, you, uh, if you have time, I encourage you to watch a Ted talk cause I cover habituation, okay. which ah. is what's happening in your brain when you tune something out after processing it multiple times. So that's what was happening. I would leave sticky notes in my house. And for the first day or two, I'm like, yeah, that really helps me shift my perspective. And then by day three, I just look right past it. Not even on purpose, just my brain had so quickly adapted to that stimulus that it was like, next. Mm-hmm. And what kind of things do you put in the text messages? So I get asked this question a lot. So often that I just went ahead and added a phone to the top of our website that cycles through a week's worth of text messages so you can go read them yourself. And then people said, well, I want one delivered to me. And I was like, dang. Okay, so then we'll add, we have a banner at the top of our website right now um, where you can just type in your phone number and hit text me and it will send you a random Coke Notes message. So I don't know what it will say, but I know that we'll text you something. But all of the texts are are designed to be really simple and casual and easy to understand. So we're not going to send you like a really stiff, clinical, complicated dissertation where you have to like read a case study. It's 160 characters or less in plain English to help you start to understand more aspects of your own mental and emotional health and how to grow in the right direction. So I'm not going to read you one. Because half of the magic, like Trisha was pointing out, and like like you just mentioned, Molly, is the the timing of the delivery. So if I read you a text message right now, you might think, that's cute. That's interesting. But when that comes in, when you're sitting in traffic or when your boss is demeaning you in a meeting or something like that, and then that text come in, that's what makes it have that impact. So I always tell people reading it out loud will rob it of its magic, kind of like um, you know, I, I sing in a metal band and we scr- like I scream, it's screaming. And there's a very specific way to do it. And someone at a dinner party will say, why don't you just, why don't you just scream for us right now? And I go, oh, that would rob it of all of its power. Like when you see us on stage and it's like live energy and there's kids jumping around and climbing on top of each other and just it's, it's atmosphere and the feeling. So I'm not going to try to scream right now at Carabas, you know, because it robs it of what makes it impactful. And I think the same is true for Cope Notes. So while you were telling us that, I typed in my phone number on your website and I just got this, the most lovely text and I'm dying to share it, but you just said, don't do that. So I'll just Dude, let you can. know. You, 
It's your show, your rules. So if you would like to share it, you are welcome to. I really want to because I'm so giddy inside with how happy it just made me, but I'm just going to let everyone wonder and do it for themselves. Okay. I encourage you to go to the website and I don't know if you'll get the same message I did, but mine has me very excited for something to look forward to that I'm going to put into place tomorrow per the text recommendation. My cat is excited about it. That's awesome. That's amazing. Now I'm going to go do it too. Um, but wow, this is amazing. I'm really excited to try it out too. Um, so we always end our episodes with one tangible takeaway. So things, and it sounds like you're good at this via the cope notes, (laughs) but what would you tell our audience one thing that, um, they could do today or tomorrow to help them in life? Before we get to that, do you mind just sharing some of your best practices for mental Mm -hmm. health that you found in addition, of course, to subscribing to Cope Notes? It sounds like you've been through a lot and you've done a lot of studying about this that most people probably don't have access to a psychology degree. So Mm -hmm. what would you say are some of your best mental health practices or pieces of advice? And then we can get into one more specific. Yeah. So I will mention, and I'm not super salesy. Like if you want to use Cope Notes, that's great. If you don't, that's great. But I will say that the reason I invented Cope Notes in the first place, a big part of it is because I do like health education publicly. So I will go and speak and do trainings and it's, it's my job. But the problem is people don't have time to spend 10 plus years studying psychology and boots on the ground with peer support. Like, so the point of Cope Notes is to distill these complex principles into these tiny tangible things. So if you are looking for that, Cope Notes is literally the exact thing that will do that. But if you're talking about something that I do personally, I subscribe to Cope Notes, obviously, but a few things that I've been doing recently that have helped a lot. Um, number one, I have been walking. That sounds so basic. And if someone would have told that to me 10 years ago, I would have rolled my eyes and said, Oh, I'm depressed. And you want me to go on a walk? How demeaning. But if you learn about the physiology, and you learn how walking delivers more oxygen to your brain, and your brain needs that oxygen to process information and make decisions, you realize when you feel low energy, and I'll do this, I'll feel like, man, I feel so stressed and overwhelmed. I bet my brain needs more oxygen. And I will walk. And I am telling you, if you understand the physiological benefit of walking and literally like UPS delivering oxygen to your brain to help you process information, you'll start doing it because it's fun. Because you can feel your your brain start to come alive, the it's kind of like an oil change for your brain. So um, I've been doing that quite a bit lately, and this is also going to sound basic, but I drink a ton of water to the point where a restroom break every hour. And I always think there are times when people tell me, "Oh, tell me the tell me the real stuff." don't tell me walking and and drinking water. Tell me the real stuff. And my response to them, this is going to sound harsh, but my response is, if you're not doing the kindergarten level of self-care, don't ask me about high school. Like start with walking and water. Once you do those things 
consistently, then you can ask me about other stuff. But I don't care how much stuff you're reading. If you're dehydrated, if you are not getting enough rest, and if you are not getting enough exercise, all the reading in the world won't help you. You have to do those things first. I love that because it really illustrates the power of simplicity. And it's so easy to overlook. I myself was like, I'm going to start take, I took a walk the other day in the morning and I love the feeling of morning air. And it just was like, I'm going to do this every day this week. And I haven't done it since Monday. And it's so simple. I had plenty of time this morning to go on a walk, mm. but I just didn't make it a priority. But I think thinking about it in terms of what you just said of this is me getting oxygen to my brain. Nothing else I do today is going to be as effective as if I take this walk. And so, yeah, it's easy to say, well, something so basic like walking or water, that's not going to help me, but really getting it into a routine and making it habit can be very profound. So I'm really glad that you shared that. Dude, I, I really feel like if you mapped and I, I understand how basic this sounds. So it's not lost on me how rudimentary what we're talking about is, but I feel like if you mapped um, people's water consumption, like a chart over the course of years and people's, um, daily calories burned, like their general, how many steps they get in a day, their general exercise level. I feel like if you mapped that over time, you would see as those things have decreased because now people can drink soda or people can drink alcohol, um, more, more available. Those things are more available, than they used to be and water becomes a less popular option over time. And then because we're working at our computers, we're not walking as much. So as those things go down, depression, anxiety are trending up. I am not a statistician, so I can't say that those are directly related, but I am saying that as, as a biased person who has felt the difference of drinking more water and walking and sleeping better, I suspect that there is somewhat of a correlation there. There has to be. And it's basic needs, right? It's basic needs. I talk about this with my students a lot. Um, I'm a speech pathologist and like, like a mom will come into the session like, oh, Johnny, why aren't you? Oh, Johnny was a random name, but that's your name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Johnny, why aren't you doing this thing? And um, I was like, well, let's think about what Johnny had to do last night. Did he stay up till like 1am finishing a project? let's not give him the hardest thing to do today because he's being deprived of his basic needs of sleep or things like that. And I think we forget about that a lot with humans. Like we need baseline stuff <laughs> to function. Yeah. And we can't perform our best if we don't have it. I, I, I relate it to, I'm a big car guy and I have this friend who's like, who knows everything about cars. And I asked him like, how do I tune my car? How do I make my car faster and more engaging to drive? And you know what he said that bothered me so much? He was like, because I thought he was going to say like, oh, you need to like remap the ECU or you need to like take it to a shop. And he goes, you need to replace your tires. Your tires are bald. And I was like, what? That's such a stupid. No, I want to know how to make my car faster and more. And he was like, if you're not willing to change your tires, then you won't, you're not ready for any of the other stuff. So you, there's like an order of operations. There's a first things first mentality. And we forget that, like you said, even with sleep. We're like, well, I'm going to get three hours of sleep tonight and then tell me a productivity hack. And I'm like, my hack is sleep more. Nothing yeah. in this will work. Exactly. When you were talking, Molly, about basic needs, it reminded me, I was at a bridal shower the other day and they went around and gave marriage advice to the bride-to-be. And one woman said, food, make sure that before you have an important conversation, your husband is fed. <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> funny. And, you know, like, make sure he's not hangry. And just like, of course, that won't happen to you. You'll make sure you're nourished. But it was just, it basically wow. are a thing. And it can change the trajectory of a marriage, apparently. That's so funny. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Okay, cool. So now, thank you for sharing all of that. Is there one piece of advice or one action step people can put into place, either something you've already said or something new in order to either improve their communication or their lives in general? Yeah, definitely. Pick one person in your life that doesn't know something about you related to your mental and emotional health and tell them that. You don't have to make it a whole thing. You don't have to like wine and dine them and, you know, just pick something about you that not a lot of people know and pick someone in your life that should know that by now. They've known you for a while and they know intimate parts of your life and you value them and cherish them and trust them and just reveal a part of you that they're not familiar with yet and just revel in that freedom of knowing that this person knows that thing about you and you don't have to hide it. You don't have to bury it. You don't have to pretend you will eventually get to the point where it's easier to share with more people, but start with that one person. So one person, one thing about you and share that. And I'm going to set a timeline. You set a timeline in your calendar. You have seven days to do this. So don't say I'll do it next month or next year. You have seven days from the moment you're listening to this podcast, set a reminder in your calendar, start the clock. I love that. And I would imagine once you do that, see how they react. My guess is they'll probably share something personal about themselves too, Mm -hmm. because that's how we work. Yes. This whole episode has been so fascinating. I I love psychology. I could literally talk to you for days. So I appreciate you being here and sharing all of this with our listeners. Can you share where our audience can find you? Yes. So go to copenotes.com. All of the, our podcast is on there. My TED Talk is on there. Um, there's a contact form on there if you need to get in touch with me directly. And then social media, I mainly do Facebook. Um, Instagram is at Johnny Crowder Loves You. And then I'm on LinkedIn as well. I'm trying to get better about using LinkedIn. Awesome. We'll put all of those in our show notes. Johnny, it's been fantastic having you. I'm excited to get my own personal text. I was like, I'm going to keep on looking at my phone because I'm like, I want to put it in. Um, I'm excited about that. So thank you for being a guest. And uh, we look forward to learning more about Hope Notes. And yeah, have a good rest of your day. Yes, ma'am. You guys too.